HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Kat Johnson here with my fantastic, lovely co-host, Hannah Forden. Happy International Women's Day, Catherine. Happy International Women's Day to you as well. I toast to you. I toast to you. All right, we are back with more HRN on tour from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are very grateful for our partners, Ben's Friends, for supporting our content today. We're talking about a lot of topics around health and wellness and sustainability and how we as a food community can support one another and build healthy, stable careers for ourselves. And I'm very excited about our next guest because I think we're going to talk about this in a way that maybe folks going out to eat at restaurants don't think about, but where your food is coming from is so important. And so who better to talk to than a farmer? So our guest right now is Greg Johnsman of Geechee Boy Mill and Farm. That's correct. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here over all this uh, kind of noise, but also just uh, weather's changing that we're enjoying today. Yeah, it's springtime. And the thing about being here in Charleston, we're outside for a whole weekend and we really start to see buds coming out, flowering. It, it truly feels like springs here. Yep. Yeah. We don't, we don't get a lot of frost right here on the coast of South Carolina. And that's one main reason what I do is possible. And it's, it's something that's overlooked so much, but, um, we have a natural frost barrier that gets us to plant a lot earlier than other parts in the state, kind of. So we use that to our advantage and um, help to kind of get crops in a little bit easier and earlier. Interesting. Okay, so let's let's start from the beginning. You've never really been on HRN before. I have not. Um, so let let's give our listeners a bit of background about Geechee Boy. Tell me. How did you start this enterprise? You, it was originally a farm, and then you started milling a little bit later. So give us a little timeline. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do this as quick as possible. But um, my uh, father-in-law was a commercial tomato farmer for about 45 years. Uh, one of his partners owned the Geechee Boy as another part of the farm. And um, as we grew and he retired, we took over that part of the farm. And it was all commercial tomatoes. I married into the family, started dabbling on especially vegetables to chefs and just really looking at a lot of varieties that were missing. We were shipping on a large scale as a family, but Charleston had such a basis. I grew up in the upstate of South Carolina, but coming down here to see the ability to get to a chef, to put something different in their hands. And then long story short, 15, 16 years ago, 
Uh, my father-in-law looked at me, being the youngest, and he said, there will be no commercial farm for you. And it's not a bad thing. It's that he could already understand how the shipping lanes were changing, how the varietals were changing, meaning Florida could grow a, a later tomato and North Carolina, Virginia could grow an earlier tomato. So we saw our market closing to the point where it was very hard to operate. So uh, my wife knew my background of playing with junk, which is old equipment. And that's what I do best is kind of fix things up. And um, we, we kind of incorporated my love for saving old mills that I got to work on as a kid. And her dad was an encyclopedia and is an encyclopedia, meaning everything that we're growing, everything that we're trying to achieve has been done before us. And he was doing in 4-H. So when we're trying to recreate these old strains, all we're doing is trying to do stuff that farmers were trying to walk away from. But why are we doing it to, uh, to tie it back in is we're at to the flavor. I've created and worked with a market of chefs. And from there, they've helped us kind of expand the, the brand and the idea behind it. That was an incredible summary of uh, years and years of work I've and tried. generations of work, I've, I've really. Tried. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the, the background of the, the history of the name? Yeah, so Geechee Boy, the name of the company, is my father-in-law's um, nickname. Uh, Mr. Raymond Tumbleson died um, years ago, but um, he did it from separating out uh, his actual from a namesake in tomatoes. Uh, when we inquired to farm, I didn't put a lot of thought into it. It was the name of the farm, so farmers kind of keep things the way it is we keep doing. But what what is transpired from that is so much more. What what it's done is it's introduced me to who the people are before us, the culture before us, and um, the Geechee. Uh, a lot of people look at where Gala and Geechee comes from. Geechee is a dialect that originates down in the Sea Islands, most notably on the river, the Ogeechee River. So it's a, it's a brogue, it's a dialect. And what it represents, what gets me so excited about the opportunity is with working with all these families on the Sea Islands, not growing up here is we're representing the culture and the aspect of what they grew to stay alive here. We farm in an idea of called a biodynamic farm where each crop helps the next. So explaining with the name, what's so important about that is when we introduced rice, when we introduced rye and peas in the mix, what you're doing is you're using a crop to help the soil, to help the next. And I want to tell you, I've figured something out, but this is what people generationally before us did. And that's what's exciting is BJ Dennis, chefs like him that are representing the Gala community have come to me and we work very hand in hand to make sure that we're representing not only the culture and the people right, but we're also representing how the food trail is and what it should be. So it, it's, it's a matter for me, the name was just keeping the farm going, but more importantly, it's come out to realize that there is a, lar a larger picture that I now get to represent and help with. And the community. There's a, there's a oh, huge yeah. community I mean, here. The, the community, the Sea Islands, it's just a way of life that I don't think a lot of people see. We call it the one pot. You know, people are used to eating and saving everything from the summer and, and cooking in one pot. And these recipes, we're kind of the base. And that's the exciting part. We're just giving one of the grains, one of the heirloom products, and letting people take the expressions. But there's so many locals that have so much knowledge to help kind of mm -hmm. put this back together. On that note, like locals being able and like older generations being able to pass down knowledge. So I think one of the cool things about Geechee Boy is, is the mill and how that came to be such a symbol and sort of core part of the, of the company. Talk about how you started discovering these old mills and why you decided it would be 
the smartest move to use old mills and restore them instead of finding the newest, latest technology? Yeah, well, so, you know, it was a way to supplement our income at first. It, it, it wasn't even an income supplement. The idea was I got to restore, my passion was restoring equipment. My idea was just to get the general knowledge of people understanding why equipment's used and to see the benefits of equipment. But what happened is it spun so quick that we had to move away from growing vegetables just to keep producing enough for the mill. And the chefs started passing names. So why the equipment, why to do all that is, again, it was done before. I'm not doing anything new. I'm just holding knowledge that I guess a lot of people, I didn't realize I had knowledge. I just thought it was something that everybody knew and understood. But the mills range, the oldest mill we have is 1847. Uh, the next mill would be about 1874. And about the newest mills into the 1960s. But um, I chip all the stones by hand. There's different patterns for different products. And there's uh, Babbitt uh, uh, bearings. So we pour the bearings. We don't use anything modern. But why do all this? Um, best way to explain to people is um, Sean Brock came to the farm one time with the New York Times. And he challenged me and he said, look, I want to show what an heirloom corn tastes like. So to most people, when you say that, you're going to say, all right, just grow it, just mill it, and let's take it. Well, his thought pattern, let's go 10 steps beyond that. And the idea was, is we use liquid nitrogen in many different parts of the process. We, we took the corn to a very, very cold state and, and cracked itself. Then we took it into a mill and cracked it again. Then we took and held it. So we looked at about 10 uh, different ways of the same corn, and each one showed that if you can keep the corn as pure possible, that the natural oils and sugars begin to start telling the actual flavor profile. So he gave me an idea and then we had to figure out how to do it from a cost standpoint. So the mills and all have stories, they have a way of life and that's important to me. But more importantly is we're keeping the products in its natural state. And what that's doing is it's then giving a chance for everybody to taste all the hard work we've done. Is that just about the, the, the keeping the, the product cold through the milling process, or is there more to it than that? There's a lot more to it. Okay. We're looking at humidity and temperatures, oh. but it's, it's also in the growing. Uh, you know, it has to be harvested at certain moisture contents, not only for storage, but a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you ha sometimes you have to use grain drives and stuff to preserve the corn to hold it. it. Again, I think what some people don't know is everything I do has is done one time a year. So I have to project, right now we're getting ready to plant in about two weeks, but we have to project what we think people are gonna latch onto, how much they're gonna use for the whole year, and we have to store it for the whole year. So a lot of it is storage. Again, the tomato farm did its, did its blessing on us. And what I mean by that is, how many people are blessed with a cooler that you can store 440 tons of product to start a business? So when the tomatoes went out, I had the ability to store a very large amount of grain, and, Keeping grain bins just isn't physically possible long-term here, so we had to look at different ways. But cold milling is important. The the actual, there's so many little things that I've changed and hidden from signatures of screens to airflow to make it cool down properly. And then these mills I talk about, um, we're looking at a very slow process so it doesn't generate heat. So many modern things today are generating heat. And the more important thing is, a lot of milling today is done to separate to do it faster. And we're trying to use stone mills so we don't separate. So we're keeping the germ in there. We're keeping all the nutrition as much as possible all in one piece. So I want to I want to kind of do a case study about one specific grain or, or actually corn that you're working with. So there was a specific corn 
strain called the Cox Prolific, C-O-C-K-E apostrophe S. Yes. And I have an interview with David Shields, who helped find this old strain. Um, he actually used Facebook to find it yep. through someone in Asheville who had bought it on Craigslist yep. and then traced it back far enough to find the, I believe, 99-year-old farmer. Yeah, his name's Manning, Manning farmer. farmer. Yeah. And found found this, what he thought could be lost. And and it, and it is true. And people always ask, you know, we're with David Shields and Glenn Roberts and Anson Mills and so many other places. You know, I'm, I, I grew up a miller teaching me to mill and marrying into a family farm. But these stories are true. And 99% of them are problems and they're not real. And we have to work through that. But Manning Farmer is the blessing. I think it's one of the largest finds in my lifetime. It's a, it's a white corn. Jimmy Red is one that I've spent the last 11 years on, and it's one of the most flavorful corns and has a story with here. But why Cox Prolific? Cox Prolific is kind of the next step up, and David Shields can explain a lot more. But the idea when I say the next step up is um, it's kind of a parent crop. So many varietals have come off of that variety. And, 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 and for me, they, one of the things I read early upon is they kind of called it part of three corns from Virginia, and, what, what, and it's been missing so long. And what the three corns represent is not a flavor way, but each one was for a different kind of, um, not so much altitude, but different soil type. And this is the one that's missing, and it represents so much. So um, it's funny, David found it exactly like you said, and I grew up about 20 miles down the road from Mr. Manning Farmer, and I did not find out that David Shields was looking for it. I was excited to tell him that literally I went home through a contact and got one of the rarest corns missing. So it, it was amazing that it all kind of transpired and it came back together. Um, his daddy, Manning Farmer's dad, bought it in a seed catalog around 1930, uh, died in a tragic accident about 1945 in a uh, driving a big rig. And Manning has a couple reasons. Why would you keep it going all these years? And this is what a lot of these strains are, and, and grains in particular, is it's a memory associated with his father. It, it's, it's, it's a way of life. They never planted it to um, supply huge stores. It was the corn that was noted in the family that he put in every year, enough to make his cornmeal with. And, and these stories are real, and, and it is amazing. And the flavor profile, to explain, I guess, to the listeners is, it's Appalachia, and I know that doesn't really help, but growing up right on the edge, Appalachia, to me, it's home. It's, it's what I taste when I taste it. It's, it's just a very pure, very good white corn. White are known for higher sugars. Uh, yellow is known for higher uh, starch content, fat, but a lot of times that doesn't mean a lot, but, the, but the, the, it just has not only an amazing true story, but it, it's, it's a real thing, and for, for me as a grower, Usually we find a crop like this, and then I spend the next seven to eight years wondering what we can do with it. In one year, Manning Farmer gave me enough to put on the market to get it back in Chef's hand in one year. That, that does not happen. It's incredible, and I met you and Betsy in um, San Francisco, and you were at the Good Food Mercantile, and she, I am so grateful. She gave me a, a bag of the Cox Prolific cornmeal, and I went home and, per David Shields' instructions, made spoon bread. Yep. Oh my gosh. It was like the perfect cornmeal for a spoon bread. It, it is. And, and, and what's interesting is, is, is your listeners, is the general public going to help any more than me wanting to save it? Because what I mean by that is there's a thousand, there's so many more than a thousand varieties of white corn out there. Jimmy Red has nothing to compare it to. 
You know, there's Appalachian Red, the parent crop, and there's Bloody Butcher, but it has a totally different flavor profile. It has a totally different look. There's a million white corns out there, but but is a story strong enough? And it, and it takes your listeners and people to understand why we work so hard to save it. For me, I go back to why is it probably the largest um, uh, thing or find in my lifetime. I'm 41. It is because it's a parent crop. It represents so many varieties that have come off of it. So for me personally, I'll never stop growing it. Will it be something that the market's going to take off? I don't know. And it's really going to be up to people to kind of decide that. But um, for me, I just, I, it was in disbelief. And to find it that close to where I grew up was even better. And I was wondering, because like, I, I, I saw you speak at the Good Food Awards. You know, Kat was lucky enough to bring home some of your products. And I'm curious, you're, you know, you have devoted your career to preserving these farming traditions, preserving these different species. And, you know, we love people like David Shields um, and Glenn Roberts, who also devote their lives to that. But I'm curious, like, you know, you have the support of chefs, you have the support of these other advocates, but like, does how does, um, you know, partnering with an organization like Good Food or Slow Food um, help to keep your story going? No, Good Food, I, I gave them a hard time for years and, and I do that and I, out of respect because I was like, how do you have a pantry but not have grains included? And they said, give us time, we're growing, we're adding it. And I was blessed to be part of the first year. That organization is Slow Food. Slow Food is the champion of how we've been able to kind of document and keep these varieties going. But without these organizations, it's not possible. It's not possible without people like David Shields and Glenn Roberts because I get to spend my day where I want to, which is on the farm working and milling, and I don't have the time to market and talk about this. And that's why I say I don't know what Cox is going to do other than helping to save it. You know, will it come back to the masses? Will it? Well, I don't know. You know, the problem, I guess, the listeners need to also understand is these varieties, there's a reason why they moved away. There's a reason when I talk about my father-in-law in 4-H growing these and why they don't grow them anymore. They're problematic. You know, we've had four hurricanes here. We've lost probably two-thirds to half of all our crops from wind damage and rain damage and not being able to get in. Morning glory growing like vines to take it down and we can't harvest it and then it molds. I mean, but why do we do it? It's for flavor. Flavor is first. And these organizations you talk about is the main reason they believe in what we're doing and they check on us and we check on them to make sure it's kind of in that light to kind of keep the uh, flavor profile alive. And that's that's the culinary side is our thrust. I would say 80% uh, that kind of spreads our products is the culinary side and it trickles to the retail. And the exciting part is the retail is where it should be. The retail is how people's grandmothers, it's how it was cooked in the homes. And we're not trying to reinvent anything. We're just trying to bring back the memories that were created. And it comes back to the cultures and way of life. I got to tell you all a quick story. We, we raise a, um, the oldest strain of corn we work with is called Guinea Flint. It comes out of Cuba about the early 1500s. And um, it's a yellow corn. It's almost orange. It's beta carotene, almost makes it dark orange. So the oil starch, the, the fat content is so amazing. It's a flint corn, totally different structure. And I guess another thing to explain to listeners is how do you grow all these varieties? Because we spread them out on the sea islands. These are open pollinated. They can cross pollinate with each other and ruin each other. But the guinea flint has this amazing, just, just stovetop stuffing, very savory, just full flavor. But one of the elders from the Gala community took it and totally changed the flavor profile. And how did she do it? It was so simple is she didn't even know she was doing anything. It's, it's a, uh, her daughter works with me every day and, and uh, Miss Emily's taught me so much, but she rinses the corn and what she's doing because she doesn't she's done it out of memory 
But what she's doing is she's rinsing off the pins. And what a pin is, is where the actual piece of corn is touching the cob, which is a bitter part. Mm. And what she's done is she calls it washing the husk or hucks, but she's changing the flavor profile. I show that to high-end chefs and it's changed how they're doing their stuff. So it, we're, we're not doing anything, again, new. We're, we're working with people that have the knowledge and I'm trying to kind of convey why we're growing these corns or other grains because we're into Carolina gold and all these rotations of other crops, but it's kind of listening to the general public and working with them. And it's funny that it's going back to the uh, high-end kind of uh, uh, chefs and restaurants everywhere because of their ideas that are done in the home. Yeah, and I want to leave it on this because I think one thing you talk so well, like eloquently about that Glenn Robert talks about, and I'm sure a lot of other people do as well, is that it's not about, especially when we're talking about climate change, which is can be felt, especially here in the low country, right? It's not about inventing new technologies to adapt to rising sea levels or you know, heavier hurricane seasons. It's about going back to ways we used to do things. It's, it's listening. It's taking the time to listen to your elders and understand that there is a reason why they did things a certain way because modern practices will not help what, what we're trying to um, kind of uh, keep going, going forward because a modern farmer, corns, you know, well into 300 bushels to the acre. Some of these corns are barely 30 bushels to the acre. And, you know, the cost costs just the same, if not more, to make a lot less. So, yes, we, we, have to, we have to keep in tune. And every environment makes a certain thing, meaning that where you're related on the equator line only lets me produce certain crops here. So we are trying to work on the crops that were here in the south, and we're trying to keep those rotations alive. There's things in Mexico I can't grow. There's hard wheats for breads that I can't grow. So I can't fix every crop, nor is everything going to turn up. And so I have to kind of hyper-local listen to what's here and, and see what we can do to kind of help. Awesome. Okay, well, last question. Where can uh, folks learn more about Geechee Boy and order your products? We can go on our website, geecheeboymill.com. Very simple. Uh, G-E-C-H-I-E boymill.com. But um, we're in a lot of little grocery stores and Hopefully, if you haven't seen our product, more importantly, ask your grocery stores, ask your restaurants, ask your chefs to consider carrying them and try them out. And uh, we'd love to hear from anybody just uh, what their thoughts are on kind of, is it a memory they remember or is it somebody you can kind of relate to? Awesome. Thank you, Greg. Thanks have so a, much. Have a great day. You too. All right. Um, I'm Kat Johnson. I'm Hannah Vorden. And we'll be right back with more HRN on tour. This program is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast. 